Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. Right now, you're listening to Maggie Gallagher, author of Debating Same-Sex Marriage, giving a talk entitled Marriages, The Challenges Behind, The Challenges Ahead. This talk is part of the Society of Catholic Social Scientists series. How many people here have actually read uh, Benedict's Regensburg Lecture? I'm not surprised. Those of you who haven't really should, because I think it's one of the most enlightening essays on the theme of this panel, which is the politicization of science. And I'm probably not doing justice to it, but what I got that was so exciting to me, because it revealed a lot about the world in which I've been living, is that when reason is reduced to science, two things happen. First of all, whole realms of human uh, nature and endeavors which are not susceptible to the scientific method get ruled out of rational reflection, and that's a problem. Um, The second problem is that when reason is reduced to science, because every society, every community, right, needs a public morality. Science becomes the sole rational basis for a public morality, and that means the scientific process, the integrity of the scientific process is corrupted as people seek to shut down scientific debates so that they can use science to create the public morality of their choice. And that's a lot of what we are seeing happening with uh, these issues. Um, I, uh, I like to say that pretty much everything I learned about culture change, I learned from an essay by James Davison Hunter, a sociologist at the University of Virginia, who is a, um, who invented the term culture war. Uh, he wrote a book, which is not a very good or very interesting book, because he gets diverted and preoccupied by how much he doesn't like the religious right. Uh, But the essay, the original essay called To Change the World, uh, which he gave to Trinity Forum, is incredibly enlightening, and it begins with what I think is the best definition of what culture consists of. And he writes this in response to the common idea, particularly among evangelicals, um, that culture consists of individual values and individual souls, and that the pathway to cultural change, therefore, is through the conversion of individual hearts and minds. He said, this is a false theory of what culture is and how it happens, and all attempts to change culture based on this model will fail. This does not mean we're not called to convert individual hearts and minds and precious souls. This is a theory about how culture changes and what it is. And he said, cultural power is the power to name reality. And uh, it is not Uh, cultures are created, they have a center, and uh, they spread, and that uh, the power of cultural creation lies uh, not in the individual genius, but in the network. Um, That's one of the reasons I'm so happy to be here today, and uh, I wish you to recognize um, the potentially uh, culture-changing power of creating the kind of intellectual networks that, and with the human capital that exists in this room. And I also want to say a word about the role of the empirical social sciences, because I think that they're extremely uh, important. 
It's too important to feel, especially in a society where if cultural power is the power to name reality, right? Is that thing in the womb just a clump of cells or is it actually a human life? Who has the power to name that reality? Uh, are two men who've pledged to stay in a sexual union for the rest of their life really a marriage or not? Who has the power to credential that uh, reality? Um, because of the uh, enormous cultural capital of science, uh, uh, the, the empirical social sciences remain a field too important to abandon. And there's also an enormous opportunity within them because in my own experience, I am, I'm actually a journalist by training. I have a bachelor's degree from Yale University in religious studies. But I have, from time to time, managed to make a, it, contributions um, working with very serious and highly credentialed social scientists like my co-author, Linda Waite, um, in part because uh, if you, the, the liberal consensus is so thick and so binding within the academy that uh, an intelligent person who understands the social sciences can just make enormous contributions in proposing new research questions, which is often the most important uh, thing, uh, new interpretations and new understandings. And uh, so our place, in a sense, at the margins of the academy is also a potential opportunity. And I simply want to stand here today from my personal experience and affirm the value of what you do. It does not, one of the things I learned from the Prop 8 trial is that it does not matter what the social science says if no credentialed social scientist is willing to say it. And that is fundamentally what happened at the uh, trial court. The a small number of credentials, I mean, the number of social scientists who know that the scientific basis of the gay parenting research is very weak is quite large of people who take a look at it. These are not kind of deeply buried technical flaws. They're really a kind of big holes in what we can claim to know based on scientific evidence. I would resist saying that these studies are all bad or politically motivated. I, I don't believe we need to attribute motivations they are, at best, an exploratory beginning set of research studies. What is unjustifiable is not the research, but the broad claims made on the research. And when they're made by the researchers themselves, they're not really um, justifiable as science. Um, but uh, so I think that uh, uh, Father Sullins is right. Uh, that we probably stand at the beginning of a, a counter-intellectual movement. Uh, it's going to have to stand on the basis of extremely uh, good science, and I think we're going to be called to work together across lines of, of uh, faith and ideology to defend the integrity of the scientific process. <clears throat> but doing so can have an enormous impact. What you do in your own work, the networks you create with colleagues, the students you mentor, um, any you can encourage to become credentialed, who, are, who have the gift to become a credentialed empirical social scientist. It's going to be extremely important because what we face now is an, uh, a challenge we've never really faced in American society. I, I read the Windsor decision, the Supreme Court's decision in DOMA, as a very clear signal there are now five votes to impose gay marriage on all 50 states. And furthermore, based on the most uh, insulting um, rationale, 
Justice Kennedy did not consider and dismiss the arguments for marriage as a universal human social institution rooted in the great truths that society has a special stake and interest in bringing together men and women to make and raise the next generation. He simply ignored those questions. And in fact, he did worse. He translated the, he, he collapsed the distinction between um, the, uh, the ideal and the stigma, right? So he collapsed the distinction between affirmation or recognition and hatred or tolerance, right? There is now, in, in the line of reasoning laid out by the fifth vote, the swing vote of the Supreme Court, to refuse to affirm gay relationships as sacred marriages is to demonstrate hatred, unreasoning stigma, and bias, right? There's, there's no space in there anymore at least in Justice Kennedy's mind, and I think it's going to be part of an effort. What if the norms embodied in gay marriage are going to become the new public norms? Uh, they're going to have to be used to shut down as the moral and legal equivalent of racism, the classic understanding of marriage, sex, and the human person. And we see that playing out now in the public square. That's the number of professions which it's becoming impossible to enter if you have publicly opposed gay marriage is getting quite large. Um, I'll just mention two of them. Uh, last week, the state of Washington uh, issued a reprimand of a state judge, and he agreed. He put his name to the reprimand. What did this judge do that violated the code of ethics in the state of Washington? In chambers, he was asked by his staff if he would perform same-sex weddings, and he said no, he didn't think so. And they said, why? And he said, well, it's just a religious thing with me. Someone in his staff leaked that, made a public brouhaha, then went to the Judicial Commission and, and, and asked for an ethics violation, which this judge has now accepted. So it is now, you cannot be a judge in the state of Washington if you private and personally say out loud that you don't perform same-sex weddings for religious reasons. Let me give you a second verse. Uh, you know, another profession you can't be. You can't be a baker in the state of Oregon. How many of you have heard of uh, Melissa of Sweet Cakes? Again, better than most places. I, better than in Oregon when I was speaking before an evangelical Bible college. But So this is quite an extraordinary case. This is an evangelical woman. I have to pause and say, as much as I admire Melissa, I'm a Catholic and I have to consult with some priests, but I think I could probably figure out a way that it was okay for me personally to bake a cake for a gay wedding. I'm not sure, but I'm not, I mean, I'm not, so I'm not saying, I'm not saying this because I know that Melissa and her conscience was absolutely right. There's no way for a good Christian to do this. But here's what I do know about Melissa. She was perfectly willing to serve on a warm and friendly basis, all people, gay or straight. Um, the lesbian couple that came to her had been clients of her bakery for years. And when they asked her to bake a cake for their, it's not even a, a legal wedding ceremony in Oregon, but a civil union ceremony, she said no, that she couldn't do it. They uh, went to the press, and they, complained, they filed a complaint with, of discrimination with the proper government authority that governs that in Oregon. Uh, it caused a big news story. The gay rights community went to her corporate clientele base and threatened them if they didn't withdraw their custom from an evil discriminator. She received death threats. Her bakery truck, which was <clears throat> parked 
in front of their home in a rural Oregon road. So it's not like it was on a street and somebody saw it and got mad. Somebody went to their home, trashed the bakery truck, did not steal anything, right? So it sent a very clear message. And Melissa's uh, bakery shop is now shut down, right? And she and her husband uh, have five children. Her husband and I was out, as I said, I was out in Oregon giving a speech. He's apparently hauling garbage now to try to make a living. And uh, the really striking, there are a number of striking things about this case, but the first of all is that the legal theories that are used to justify this treatment of Melissa stem uh, from our experience with racism. And the one thing that's very clear here is that this is not Jim Crow. Melissa is not personally trying to, in an organized, systematic way, keep down and exclude gay people from operating in the mainstream. She simply does not want to personally bear false witness by participating in a gay wedding. And the price of her convictions now are the livelihood of her five children. The lesbian couple, of course, had no trouble finding another baker to bake a wonderful cake for their ceremony. Um, the disjunction between the punishments imposed and the goods pursued, right? The only explanation for it you can find, and I, and I would say um, the unintelligibility of the classic case for marriage to most, not all, but most gay marriage advocates, which was on display in Windsor, I thought a lot about what the roots of this unintelligibility is, because it's not really that they understand your argument and agree with you. In many cases, they literally just don't understand that you made an argument, right? And I think it's the person who shed the most light for me, and I actually think it, you would find his work really interesting, is a social psychologist named uh, Jonathan Haidt, H-A-I-D-T. And he has kind of pioneered uh, a field the empirical study, well, I lost the, uh, can you hear me? The empirical study of, uh, uh, the empirical study of the psychological foundations of morality. Wrote a book called The Righteous Mind. Best introduction to his work is on the TED Talk site. So go, go to TED Talks, if you know what that is, and Google Jonathan Haidt and, uh, and, and pull up his work. <clears throat> and, uh, he had a, he's a classic liberal, um, not a religious man, but he had a conversion experience when he went to India, and he suddenly realized that as a good liberal, he believes in understanding other people and cultures, and yet his, uh, his uh, ideology had been blinding him to the fact that whole swaths of the rest of the world have different moral understandings than he and his colleagues. And in fact, so he's, he's, uh, he's actually... He began with the psychology of disgust, which is a really interesting field. So he would pose all of these um, uh, strange moral hypotheticals, like uh, a family's dog was killed by a car. They decided to take it home and eat the dog, right? Is this right or wrong? Now, almost everyone will say it's wrong to eat your family's dog. But the interesting thing is only in the West do people have a very hard time coming up with a moral argument for it, right? They don't. They, they, they feel it's wrong, but they don't know how to explain why that would be wrong. Another example is uh, adult incest between a brother and sister using multiple forms of birth control so no children can result. Even, even liberals in the West find the idea disgusting, but they do not know how to explain why that could be morally wrong. Um, 
And that pointed him to the reality that uh, liberalism, and he also observed that he asked people to predict the views of, of uh, liberals, conservatives, and moderates on a range of questions. And he found that the liberals, especially people who call themselves very liberal, were the worst of all at actually being able to predict what people who disagreed with them believe, right? So um, I don't know if that's a characteristic of liberalism or just the characteristic of being the reigning intellectual dogma that you understand the alternatives better. But one of the things he found, he, he concluded that liberalism's moral, psychological foundations of liberal morality rests on two basic receptors, two basic foundations. Uh, care harm, you have, you're supposed to care about other people and not do harm to them, and fairness. Uh, he says that everybody across the world cares about these things. That's not what's distinctive. But that most people around the world and people, uh, conservatives within the United States, have a five or six receptor morality foundation. So things like um, in-group loyalty, uh, 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 respect for authority, sanctity or purity. These um, liberals do not understand them as a moral argument. And I think it's something about that is at the heart of the unintelligibility of our case for marriage. Because I know, I, speaking for me personally, it rests on a strong sense that a sexual order is extremely important to sustain if you're going to protect children and keep men and women from hurting each other. And I can uh, easily understand that the sexual order may do harm and need to be reformed. And, but uh, liberalism classically does not understand the sexual order except as an imposition on autonomy and self-determination. With one great exception, and this is what brought me back to this, right, the Melissa exception. There is only one case in which liberalism is willing to tolerate a concrete harm to an actual individual in defense of a moral order, and that is if the moral order being defended is the liberal conception of equality, right? So the bad news is that when the government adopts, that equality is the state religion, and when the government adopts gay marriage it, and it is importing into its authority the, these uh, strong equality norms, when put it this way, um, the heart of the gay marriage marriage equality, the heart of the gay marriage norm is there is no morally relevant difference between same-sex and opposite-sex difference. And if you see a difference, there's something wrong with you. You're like a bigot who's opposed to interracial marriage. So the challenge for us as Catholics, the challenge for us as social scientists or people committed to truth, uh, the challenge uh, for uh, us who care about marriage and understand its role in protecting children it's all the same. We're going, we're, our uh, beliefs about marriage are, I believe, in the next 18 months, um, going to be privatized at a minimum by the Supreme Court, right? If uh, all the cases in all the jurisdiction now filed, if they win those at the appellate level, 18 months from now, there will only be marriage between one man and one woman in 12 states. And that's before it gets back to the Supreme Court again, right? So I think it's going to happen very fast, and we should be ready for it. Um, and uh, so not only is our understanding of marriage going to be privatized, but there's going to be a vigorous attempt um, by some powerful members of the liberal consensus to shut down the public debate, to punish those who speak out, and uh, a particularly intense effort 
to uh, misuse science to create this new public morality. And the plus side is that the power of being able to stand inside the discipline and within the academy and do good work that promotes the truth is not necessarily that you need to win that debate within the academy, but you need, but what the most powerful thing you can do is prevent the shutdown of the debate, right? What they need to do is say every rational person believes X, and if you believe Y, you cannot be a rational person, right? And that is what the, the way the scientific debate is politicized, corrupted, and used to establish a public morality. And it's why one Robbie George can be so outside. You know, one Princeton professor who's Robbie George can have such such a big impact because there aren't supposed to be Princeton professors like Robbie George, right? And uh, wherever you are in the academy, you share that form of social and cultural power uh, if you uh, use it. So what is the task ahead? Professionally, um, as I said, it's to intellectually, the primary task is to intellectually defend the integrity of the scientific process, to uh, ask new research questions, to engage in good research, to engage in the intellectual debate, to refuse to be silenced and refuse to be shut out, to create networks, to carry your work, to mentor uh, the next generation of intellectuals and social scientists. All of this is very important. Personally, I would say, as Catholics, um, our task is to figure out how to transmit a marriage culture, a distinctive Christian marriage culture, first in our own families, in our own pews, in our own communities, to the next generation. And here's the good news. We've done that before. How did we get from being, you know, 50 guys in AD 33, uh, outcast members of a conquered nation? How, within 300 years, by the grace of God, did Christianity become the center of the dominant world culture? Well, there's a lot of answers to that by the grace of God. But as Rodney Stark has pointed out, the distinctiveness of the Christian marriage and family culture, a big chunk of which we inherited from our elder brother, the Jews, is a huge part of how that transformation took place. Uh, the Romans could not believe you had to raise all the children you had, that you couldn't just throw them away in the streets if they were inconvenient. They could not believe in male chastity or fidelity at all. They couldn't believe that you weren't supposed to divorce. In fact, even, even, even the disciples hanging around with Jesus could hardly believe that you're not supposed to divorce your wife. But and uh, by the uh, time of Jesus, the marriage crisis in that culture, the culture of death, was firmly entrenched, and they, Romans never figured out how to overcome it. And uh, the future fundamentally belongs to people who make and raise the next generation. That's the first engine of evangelization and also the first engine of culture. Um, we have to marriage, what is distinct, marriage is being transmitted into a bureaucratic um, set of legal benefits given to two people who care about each other for some way and some reason as long as they care in which children are simply irrelevant outside, they're not intrinsic, they're not really necessarily part of the deal. It's a culture that's becoming more and more obviously ugly. Um, and our task, personally as Catholics, is to make visible what we believe anyway. We know that, that in, in marriage we're modeling the love of God for his church, 
Christ for his church. We are creating a tie so firm that a child's heart can rely on it. And we are in the process demonstrating that love is the most real thing in the universe. If we can't do that within our families, we can't pick one person and love them for the rest of our lives the way God loves everyone. We're called to do much harder things as Christians, right, in terms of love. But if we can't do that within our own families, if we can't care enough about our own children to put their needs first, I think it calls deeply into question um, our faith commitment. But conversely, if we build this culture of marriage, if we demonstrate that love is more real than fear or lust or uh, boredom or temptation, if we demonstrate that being doing right by your children is the most basic level of, of human decency, we will transform American culture. Thank you. Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.